thirty to four, four I think. Yeah. Um, at three o'clock is a great concert by the Maccabees, who you might have seen on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And eleven o'clock is a wonderful concert your kids would love. Um, with Sheer Lala, who, who I've seen, and she's amazing. Um, and the concerts actually are free. The Yom Lamut itself, I think, is seven dollars. If you register today, ten dollars. Seven dollars if you register in advance by today. Ten dollars at the door. Um, it's a bargain. There's, there's I'll send out an email uh, for this week with the all the classes. Rabbi Gordon's teaching a class. Rabbi Wolby. Um, not Rabbi Wolby. No. Rabbi Wolby usually sits there. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'll get all this to you uh, and just let everyone know that we're not going to class as a result of that. Yeah. Um, and this Wednesday night, I, I'm facilitating a class. You have a, a flyer there. I, on, and this was kind of a request. Um, but the, it, it's based on a book called Common Prayers by Harvey Cox, who's a Christian theologian, um, and how living a Jewish life with his Jewish wife and children have helped him learn both about his own Christianity and his wife's Judaism and what the Jewish calendar does to inspire all of us. So it's, it's, not, um, it's not Dr. Cox teaching the class. It's based on his book, so it's more... Um, more of us learning from each other about different things, uh, but it will be an interesting discussion for, for three weeks starting this Wednesday. And um, at 10.30 today, there's going to be a presentation in there about Green Family Camp, and other good things coming up. Um, we got plenty of time for other good things coming up. All right. Thank you, Rabbi. So everyone get my email, brother uh, class. So we're uh, we're glad you could be here, Eric, to uh, to teach us. We we'll look forward to learning from you. Thank you. Um, so with permission from the rabbi from from the group, I, I uh, I'm honored to be able to speak to the group here. Um, I'll bring I'll give a disclaimer that I'm not a rabbi, and um, I won't speak as eloquently as Rabbi Wolby, who is um, I, I learn with Rabbi Wolby on a regular basis. He is. A very special person, as I'm sure you guys all know by now. Very talented. So um, with that disclaimer, <clears throat> he asked me to say a few things. <clears throat> so um, that sort of tailed off because he couldn't make it today of, of, <clears throat> of what he <clears throat> was speaking about before. Excuse me. <clears throat> so um, I'm going to speak about... Uh, Amuna and my, the, the topic that I came up with is bridging the unbridgeable gap. How Torah, mitzvahs, and science bring us to Amuna. So I'm going to go from a lot of premises that you guys already know things of what Amuna is, at least the, the basic concept from previous classes. That being said, I would prefer if I was interrupted as much as possible because if there's something that's not clear or something that I could articulate in a way that would make more sense to you if I'm speaking too fast. Um, I keep running through my head last night what happened to Marco Rubio. So I was just thinking, like, I don't want to make any mistakes when I speak today. <laughs> uh, it did, he, he, um, yeah, Christy got him pretty good in the debate. 
Yeah, it's worth one of those three queries. Oops, moment. I, I didn't watch. It's worth it's worth checking out later. <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, with that caveat, so I'm, the topic I'm going to talk about right now, as I said, bridging the unbridgeable gap, is this idea that according to Jewish philosophy, uh, the purpose of life is to connect to to God. Right. That makes a lot of sense. God created us. He put us on this earth. He would want us to connect to him. Even though it makes a lot of sense, there are some religious beliefs and there are some cultures who think God created the world and just let people go off and do their own thing. We don't believe that as Jews. We believe God cares deeply about us, pays attention to us. He's involved in our lives. So um, with this idea, if that's the way it is, if that's how he created us, he obviously wants us to connect to him. And a lot of the great Jewish sources, um, for instance, uh, there's a, a famous Jewish uh, rabbi, the Ram Chal, Rab Moshe Chaim Lezato, he, he, he's sort of, it's understood when he makes a statement in, in Jewish writing, in Jewish thought, that many, many people, if not the majority, at least of traditional Jews, respect what he's saying. So this is a concept that he has in a few of his books, Derech Hashem, Mesel Shisharim, that the purpose of life is to connect to God and to have joy in that connection to God. So with that premise, it should be easy to, to connect to God, right? That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? However, I think we all know that it's not easy to connect to God. I don't know. I don't, if anyone wants to disagree with me, that's fine. Does anyone just go outside and just all of a sudden they're, they feel like they're speaking to God face to face? Does anyone feel that way? I, Sometimes. You do? Okay. Yeah. With nature, if it's like a big thunderstorm coming or Something really a beautiful sunset, maybe or something. So that that is one, that's a beautiful answer that you should know because that's exactly one of the things I'm going to talk about. But the actual idea that you're talking back and forth to God, like Moses, we say, did that's that's not so common though, right? You don't hear a back and forth discussion going on. What, okay, so you might, but the but you may you may be connecting through the way that you're talking about. We'll go we'll go more into that, but. Uh, but generally, it's, a lot of people are saying, it's, you know, where's God? I, I don't necessarily see God, per se, in my face. It's not, it's not so simple that everywhere you go. I mean, in a, in a perfect world, it would be that way, I guess. But I guess we're going to talk about, actually, in a perfect world, it's not that way. And we're going to talk about why today. So let's start by first saying why, with assuming, as I was saying, that it's not so simple to do, why it is that it's not so simple to do. Okay, um, one of the first things is because God himself created the world such that it shouldn't be easy to connect to him, which is a very powerful statement if you think about it. In other words, next time you feel like, if you do feel like you're not necessarily connecting to God, you can pat yourself on the back and you can say, you know what, that's what God wanted. And you can start saying, there's nothing wrong with me necessarily. That's the way the nature of the world has been set up, the way it's created. In fact, we have proofs from this in the written Torah the, it says specifically um, that Moses went, went... Well, first of all, if I were to ask you guys who is the, who's known as the greatest prophet in, in the history of the Jewish people, what's the... Moses. Moses. trained us. Okay, good. All right, very good. Moses, right. Moses is because Moses spoke face-to-face -face with God. He's one of, the, one of the few people, not literally face-to-face, -face, but he spoke in a way that he was connecting with God like no one else has ever connected in the history of the world. So... However, even by Moses, so we're starting off with this premise that Moses would have the closest relationship. Even by Moses, the, 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 pasig, the, the passage says, It says specifically, 
Um, and he says, specifically, you will not be able to see my face, for no man can see my face and live. So God said to Moses, the one who's the closest one to him of all, right? He said to him, you can't see my face and live. So we know, actually, that the, the, the language pene, by the way, is a language of panemius, which is a language of internality, which is the essence of something, the panemi. So we know that God, that Moses could not see the internality of God. And we know it specifically, so, okay, so we also, under, there's a concept in Torah of Yeridus Hadoras. Has anyone heard that concept? The, the generations get sort of lower in spirituality as time goes on. Moses lived how many? 3,000 years ago, uh, approximately. We're 3,000 years later, so we're on a much lower level as far as being able to connect to God as Moses was. He was on the, I could, let's just say he was the high, highest level of any human being to ever live, but he couldn't see God's face, and he was talking to God. Actually, it says that he saw the back of God. He was able to see the back of his tefillin strap, is what it says in the Gemara. It's very interesting. The point is like this. If Moses couldn't do it, how are we able to... You're looking at me like, he saw his tefillin strap? <laughs> it's a, it's a, we could talk about that another time. <laughs> I'll have Rabbi Wobi talk about that. Um, anyway, so the, the point I'm making is it's, it's not supposed to be that way. God set it up so we're not able to connect to him easily. And, we're not, and when we do connect him, we're not connecting to the essence of who he is. Because God is so much vast, greater than us. Do we know, the, the, well, the term that we use for God, um, yud ke vav which is called the, the name that refers to his essence. And we don't, we don't even say that name. We, we say Ado, Shem, Ado, which is not the way it's written. It's, the way it's written is kind of like the witnesses, you know, Ye- well, I won't say Jehovah Witnesses. That's, that's the name, but we don't say that name. We don't actually say it. We don't pronounce that name because we accept the fact that we can't actually connect to the actual essence of God. We hold him out on such a great level that we can't even say his name. Okay, so we have this, so we have this, this, this idea that God doesn't want it that way. The next idea we would say is because, and I know that Rabbi Wobi talked about this, because he always talks about this, is that his, who's heard of the Yetzer Hara, or the Yetzer Ra, right? Okay, so that's the evil inclination, as we would say in English. So we all have an evil inclination, um, unfortunately, or we're going to say maybe fortunately, I'll say why in a second. That inclination, what it does is it pulls us away from God. It basically makes us go after the things we see that are tangible, our physical desires, you know, whether it's a, a big, um, you know, Super Bowl, nacho, whatever that meal's going to be today, I don't know necessarily, uh, keg of beer, whatever, I'm bringing myself back, back to my college days, but um, my, so anything that you would think that someone desires in a fraternity, that's what the Yetzirah is going after, okay, I was in a fraternity, so I could say that, but anyway, the point is like this. That, that's inside of us, and it's real, and exists. And, it dra- and, and when it pulls us to physical things, it by its very nature is pulling us away from spiritual things. So we have a drive in us that pulls us away from God. So again, big picture, we're saying the ability to have imuna or faith to connect to God is what God wants from us. However, he created a world where it's not so easy to do it, which seems a little bit counterintuitive. And he did this by basically making it impossible in some ways to, make, to actually connect to his essence, which makes sense in some ways because he's so beyond us. And he also did it by putting a drive in us that pulls us away. Okay, so why is that? What, does anyone, can anyone even think about... I mean, to me, it doesn't seem to make logical sense. Can anyone think of a reason why that would be? A test. Ah, oh, beautiful. That is exactly what I'm looking for, a test. Give me a little bit more on it. 
the, the satisfaction of earning something. That's exa- you, bo- that you, you hit it right on the nail. That's exactly right. Achievement. Achievement, right. The, 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 the Torah concept is called Nahama de Kasufa, which is translated as the bread of shame, which is this idea that if people hand stuff to us, in my mind, I'm sort of thinking of a, um, a trust fund baby, you know, a trust fund kid, right? If he's got everything handed to him, you know, we ourselves don't necessarily respect that person per se because he didn't earn it himself, right? It's in the nature of man, in the nature of a person to know that if he's handed something, it, he's, he, it's, it, he's it, shamed. I think myself, actually, the exact example I think of is my grandfather who... Um, um, he passed away about 10 years ago. I was very close with him. I remember he was a very, like, he took very, like, um, just a very hardworking man. He built himself from nothing. He came from, you know, he came with nothing and, and built himself up to being very successful. However, when he reached an age where he could no longer care for himself, it, he was crushed. Like, he, he did not want to take our help. All he, all he wanted to do was, you know, let me go to the market for you. Let me drive you around. He, he, no, I, I have to drive for myself. He wouldn't give up his ability to drive. Well, where does that come from? Where, what, you understand, like a person should be able to accept the fact that, okay, so now's my time, I'm older, I need help. But the, it's built into us as people that we want to take care of ourselves and we don't want to get handouts, right? It's funny, we take it for granted. I, there's, you feel it, right? You feel it, but, but the reality is it didn't have to be that way. But God did create the world that way. And that's really speaking about this idea that in order to connect to God, it's not, it's, it would be the bread of shame if we could just turn around and say, hey, God, here you are, and then we're talking face-to-face. No, we have to work hard. We have to put effort in such that when the relationship that we have to the, to the Creator is such that we recognize and we feel that it's something we built ourselves. So we have to put effort. To, so now the big question is... Let me add something to sure, validate your please. point. There was a documentary about 15 years ago on the trust fund kids who are very, very, very wealthy. Mm-hmm. They're the most unhappy people in the world because they did not know how to value themselves and contribute to the world because they just had every material thing handed to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always thought about when I thought about that concept. Yeah, that's a good, it's a good point. I actually do. Um, I'm a lawyer, and then I, I put on seminars sometimes for estate planning stuff, which is just like a side thing I do. And in, in my seminar, I did some research about um, how important it is to plan in advance. And in planning in advance, there was a... Uh, I did some research on lottery winners. And like you're saying, like the majority of lottery winners, the number was ridiculous. It was like 80, 90% are like broke after a year, right? So there's a much big, bigger difference between you picking yourself up for your bootstraps with nothing and working your way up to having yourself handed $10 million, right? A person has to build themselves and they have to grow. And a person, I don't know if it's the same concept, I think it is, but this is the idea that if you didn't do it yourself, you don't necessarily know what to do with it. Yeah, so I'm thinking it's kind of like, I grew up to treasure self-reliance. You know, you know, I can drive myself places, I can do things for me, I can provide for my family. And um, so at some point, um, I'm not going to be able to do those things. And that's when this concept, but I mean, the fact is, probably with, you know, with God, there are things that we're never going to be able to do for ourselves, and we can't have self-reliance and take care of this. We, you know, our relationship with God is going it's, it's so interesting you say that. I always think about this exact idea. Like, what am I going to do when am I, I'm my grandfather's age, knowing now what I know? You know, who knows what I'm going to do? I can speak very uh, confidently now. Well, you, think, but... <laughs> you, think, you think you're going to be like a cat. I was thinking about this last night because I got stuff going on with me that, you know, 
I think it, well, the cats, when their time comes, they just crawl off. Know. Right, like they know. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm thinking, well, so where where am I going to crawl off to? Right. You know, and then I think, I think, Wait a minute, there's a lot of other stuff I can do, so I don't have to be crawling off just yet. Right. No. So I, I tell myself, and I don't know if this is true, but I tell myself, especially when I give a talk like this and I think about these concepts. So at the end of the day, like I'm only able to walk and to move because God allows me to, and He created me. Right. So when I get to that age. I have to recognize that, okay, maybe I do need to take help from other people, but I'm doing it all the time from God anyway. So it's a little bit different. Like, my grandfather wasn't religious. You know, he had respect for it. His father was religious from Russia. He had respect for it. But it wasn't, he, he never had a Jewish education. He never connected to it, right? He was a New Yorker. He just wanted to be a New Yorker, go, you know, go to the Yankees games and stuff. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, but the point is like this. You know, having that concept and that idea of, of understanding where that emotion's coming from is probably a big help to recognize the reason I don't want to take their help from them. You think about it, you, 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 you recognize it because that's the way man is built. This Nahama de Kasufa idea, right? That you're not supposed to take things. But then if you recognize, listen, the nature of life is to get older. Like, we don't, we should live and be well. We should be blessed to, be, to live to a ripe old age. That's the way it's supposed to be that, that your body decays in that way and you need help from other people and, and, and you should recognize maybe that you know this is not part of the talk I'm just thinking you're making me think <laughs> but, that, but um, that really that's what it's all about and that really maybe it should be a recognition of everything I've had to this point is really from God even though he gave me the tools to be able to be successful okay so um, getting back to it so so by the way how long is this should I talk for? Uh, yeah, till, should, should, uh, wait till people fall asleep? 11.30. 11.30. That's when the kids come out. 11.30, really? That long? No, 11.15. Okay, we'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll do some question and answer if I end up or tour. All right, so, well, so one thing I want to throw in as an aside is we're t we were talking about, um, about the, y the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, and the fact that um, it's really supposed to be that way. It says um, in the Torah, there, there's, there's a midrash in the, that, that calls the Yetzirah Tov Ma'od. In, in other words, it's, it's Tov Ma'od, it is not just good, it is Tov Ma'od. It's a very good, right? So, I don't get it. Like, this, this desire that pulls me away from God is very good. So that could be, I would say, a proof to what you're saying, that basically we need something to pull us away, so when we do connect... It took us hard work, and we, we earned something for ourselves, and we, we built a relationship. I mean, everybody knows that when you work on a project yourself, and you work hard, let's say it's a dissertation or something, or, or you know, for me, like a law review paper or a brief that took me, you know, a month to work on, whatever, you know, I feel like I own it almost. It's like part of me, right? As opposed to, like, something that comes so easy, like we want that, we all have a desire for that, but we know that's not quite the same thing. So the Yetzirah is there, and if we're aware of it and we can overcome it, we feel a great sense of accomplishment, and we do receive that reward. Okay, so moving on. Um, oh, so there's one other concept I wanted to say on this idea, um, and I brought something here, so I'll take a second to just find it. Oh, so I, want, I wanted to... to read you something that I think is... Has anyone here ever heard of a rabbi named Avigdor Miller? He's a very, very interesting man. He, a little bit of a background on him. He's a rabbi 
His, his name is Rabbi Avigdor HaKohen Miller. He's an author and lecturer, lived in the United States, served simultaneously as the communal rabbi as the Mashkiach Ruchani, which is basically the, the, the leader of the yeshiva Rabbi Chaim Berlin, and he, teached, and he was a teacher at a school based Yaakov. He lived, he was born in 1908, he passed away in 2001. He's very famous for uh, being able to help people recognize, um, he very clearly explains like how to look at the world, kind of like what you were saying, and being able to recognize how it's God's hand and how things could not have happened randomly or by mistake. And he, he wrote a lot of books, and if you guys are ever interested, um, there's a website called Simcha Sachayim, which is, he, he's, he's basically, some of his stuff is incredible, like it'll blow you away. But I want to read, this is, this is a, something that he wrote called Why Learn About Betochon. Has anyone heard the term Betochon? Betochon is really another way of saying emuna. Betochon, one is, it's, it's kind of confusing, but one is like faithfulness, one is belief, one is, so let's just, for this, for our purposes, when I say Betochon, think emuna, okay? How do you spell it? in, in, in Hebrew or in English? In English, B I T A C H O N. Bitachon. Bitachon, yeah. The truth is, Rabbi Wolby, if you, you should ask him to give you a lecture on the differences, it's interesting. Okay, so this is, I'm cutting into the middle. The question asked to him was why learn about Bitachon? Why is it so important to learn about Bitachon? The answer, I'm skipping part of it to get you to the part. He says, um, but that leads to. To, a, to the great problem of betachon. The problem is that our lives are a continual contradiction to betachon. Betachon means to know that only Hashem does everything. And our, when I say Hashem, we, that's God, everyone? Okay, I don't know what Rabbi Wolby is drilled into or not. <laughs> okay, um, betachon means, means to know that only Hashem does everything and our efforts are entirely meaningless. Yet at the same time, we are continually busy all our lives contradicting this principle. A person asks Hashem for a livelihood. How much effort does he put into asking? Let's say he's a very pious man who wakes up early to spend an extra day asking exclusively for his livelihood. Imagine such a, a tzaddik, a righteous man, but look how much he does to contradict that prayer. If he works from 9 to 5, for 8 hours he is demonstrating the opposite of what he is, of what he is praying. This is the heart of the problem of betachon or amuna. We are busy all our lives contradicting the principle of betachon. We contradict it with all of our strength all day long. The problem is that everyone needs a parnasa, which everyone needs to make a living. But at the same time, you have to know that you're not the one who earns your living. It's a, you know, it's a straight contradiction. Therefore, we begin to see how important it is for people to take upon themselves the study of betachon or amuna, because otherwise they're going to be, he says, idolaters. They're going to worship their hands. They're going to worship their tools. They're going to say, which is Hebrew for... It's my power and the might of my hands that has gotten me this wealth. Not from God, it's all from me. Because it's inescapable to avoid becoming a victim of life's routine, which says you're, you are the author of your fate and, and the cause of your own success. But aren't you chewing? Aren't you marrying to have children? Aren't you taking step, steps to prevent illness? Aren't you selling your wares or your shares? When you cross the street, don't you look both ways? He says, oh, and by the way, that's a good idea. You should look both ways when you cross the street. <laughs> don't be a Baal Betachan. Don't be a, 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 a Betachan you know, expert and close your eyes when you cross the street. <laughs> the truth is that you should pray even when you walk in the street. It's a good idea to say, Hashem, see to it that I get across the street safely. It's not a bad idea. So he goes on, but do we get the gist of what he's saying here? So 
someone want to say back to me since I just read it and I can't think and read it at the same time? <laughs> what, what's the essence of what he said? To acknowledge God in all things that we have and do. Right. This conversation came up last night. We just moved into a new home. My parents came over. My dad was like, said, you must be very proud. And I said, God forbid. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I go, he goes, what do you mean? It's like, I didn't do this. This is a, this is, this new home is a gift from God. He goes, well, you obviously did a lot. And I was like, just enough to make me feel like I did do something. Right. That's yeah. a beautiful way to look at it. And, you know. Flip side of the coin. Yeah. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. But just look both ways when you cross That's the exactly right. So. Be real. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so, like, so this. Appreciate that what you're doing, the benefits of what you're doing, they exist because of God. Perhaps they're magnified because of God. Your ability to continue doing the things that bring you your livelihood. You have that because of God, but don't just sit back and do nothing and expect God to take care of you. Look both ways when you cross the street. Don't be foolish. Right. That reminds me of this joke that um, that the, you guys have probably heard this joke, but about the the, the guy was um, he I guess he was in the next world and he was saying to God, "What happened?" He's like, "I was drowning and I prayed out and I, I cried out to you." You know, but the story was that the person was in the water, mm-hmm. and a boat came by, and he blew off. Yeah, is it? No yeah, 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 no God's going to save you. Yeah. Right. Has anyone? So here, you tell the story because I don't tell it so well. Oh, okay. <laughs> tell it. So there's a person who, and I've heard it. You know, more people trapped by a flood or by a hurricane, mm-hmm. and um, and they're treading water and they're waiting. And they're help, help! I'm going to drown. I'm going to drown. And the coast guard comes by with a boat, and they say, "Here, you know," and they're praying at the same time. And, um, and the Coast Guard says, well, here, you know, come hop on our boat. We'll take you back. And the person says, oh, no, no, no I've got faith. I've got faith. God is going to save me. Um, and the Coast Guard's <laughs> like, okay. And so they leave. And he's praying, God save me, God save me. You know, I don't want to drown. I don't want to drown. And then a helicopter comes by, and it's, you know, the military. And they're like, you know, come on, we'll lift you up. No, 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 I have faith. I'm not going to accept help. God's going to save me. Um, and then he drowns and dies, and he gets to heaven, and he says, what? I had faith in you. You said you were going to save me. And he said, I sent a boat and a helicopter. What more did you want? So, I love that story. You have to yeah. accept help when it's given to you. That's yeah, right. That's the end result of it. Yeah. Well, that's don't, right. don't sit around like waiting for a miracle. Like Recognize that the material things around you and the things that people are doing, that's God working on earth just as much as if God had, you know, opened the heavens and sucked you up out of the water. Right. That, that's one of the big differences between Christianity and Judaism is Christians are more ascetic. They, they go and, you know, I'm not speaking for all of them, but, but the ones that, that do do this, go up into, you know, they become monks and they, they separate themselves and they live in their convent, you know, and because they don't want to sully themselves with the dirtiness of this world. That's not what Judaism is about. Judaism is about living in this world and raising this world up to God. We're going to talk about that later. Um, the idea that we are, we are supposed to be here. So, but, but, so getting back to, to what... Um, I don't want to get you off base, but I do want to please. add one more thing with regard please, to please, livelihood. Please. I'll be succinct. Sure. But the way I look at livelihood in the ways I just don't sit in my office twiddling my thumbs waiting for my business to come in is that our livelihoods give us the ability to serve other people, which, mm-hmm. which is a mitzvah itself. And that's why I st- we all stay engaged in doing that because it's, you know, it's not about I'm trying to get business in. I'm what are you trying doing? to serve other people. What do you do? In the, uh, investment business. Investment business, okay. Yeah, that's 100% right. Um, so so uh, what I'm saying, what, what Reb Miller was saying is two, two solid things, which you both said. But the, the main point I wanted to pull out of what he's saying is the nature of life itself 
draws you away from being close to God. The fact, like you said, like the, 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 your, your father said to you, it's what, said, what he said to you was natural. He didn't see God do anything for you, right? He saw you working very hard to earn that money. And he said to me, and we don't see it in our own lives either necessarily, unless we stop and we think, which is what this is all about. And we recognize, like I could say for myself, I w- I'll just speak for myself now. I was, um, I used to work for, I, I do a federal employee law. I just represent federal employees, which is kind of a unique area. And I worked for a labor union. I didn't make very much money for the first eight years. Of, I was actually in Israel. I quit my job. I was a lawyer. I quit my job to go learn in Israel because I got interested in this. I came back, and I just took any job I could find. <laughs> I worked there, and I didn't make very much money. So I did that for like eight years. Finally, my wife, we lived in Baltimore. My wife, my wife who's from Houston, says, I got to come to, um, I got to come, we have, Thank God we have five kids, young kids, and it was too much without family. My family's in Los Angeles, so she's like, we got to go home. So we moved back to Houston, and um, I basically was working in that job, like, by telephone, you know, with, with telephonically, whatever, um, virtually, I guess is the term I'm looking for. Yeah. So finally, I get an, an email from them, um, an email, thank you, after eight years, you're fired. <laughs> we don't want anybody who telecommutes anymore because <laughs> a new boss took over. To make a long story short, that really could have been the end of everything. So we're now talking six years later. I have my own law firm, and it's, it's, I've got like ten people work for me. So like very easily I could say, you know, wow, I'm such an amazing lawyer. I'm so powerful, this and that. But I'm the same exact person that I was eight years ago making a pathetic salary <laughs> for a labor union. The reality of it is I made some choices to come here. I took some risks. Okay, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say I don't have talent. Like I, but the point is, whatever talent I have now, I had back then also. Okay? And so the reality of the situation is I recognize that really I see God's hand in what I did. So I'm not going to put myself down. I know that I would never have made it without my talents. But where did my talents come from? Right? And where, like, that's what you're saying. Yeah. And we, so anyway, this is kind of an aside. Getting back to the point is, by its very nature, it's hard to do that. Let's be real. It's very hard for me to do that. I'm the one who has to stay up late at night and work on something and be away from my family to get a project done, or I'm the one who made a deal maybe because I was able to convince something. So I'm going to say, oh, look what I did. Well, the, pro- the reality is, yeah, I, in that particular case, I did do that, but I've done that before and been unsuccessful too. Anyway, the point is like this. I'm, what, I'm, what the point I want to make is, getting it back into, is Rev. Miller beautifully stated how the nature of the world pulls us away from doing the thing that is the essence of what we're supposed to be doing. And why is that? It's because it's supposed to not be easy, like you said. It's supposed to be difficult. So now we're going to talk about the second half of the lecture. We're going to talk about how do you do it then? If, it's, if, if basically you can't do it by just turning around saying, now you, by the way, don't get me wrong, you can speak to God and you should speak to God. But if you not, if you cannot necessarily get that immediate connection that way, right? So then how do you do it? And what is the effort you're supposed to put in? So there's, there's three ideas when it comes to this that I wanted to bring up. Um, so how many, have, have any, do any of you remember um, Rabbi Wald mentioning somebody named the Rambam? He's probably one of the most famous rabbis. Um, I have a little bit of a bio on him just to give you his background. Um, he was born in 11, well, he was born 1135 in Cordova, Spain. Um, he passed away in 1204. His religion, according to um, Wikipedia, his religion is Judaism. 
just wanted you all to know that. Just, just in case you guys were wondering. Good, thank you, Wikipedia. Um, so he lived in um, the Arab Mediterranean. I, he was a doctor. He was a great rabbi. Anyway, it's well known, basically, today, and we're holding now a thousand years later, uh, 900 years later, and, and that, that his writings are pretty much understood. If he said it, you know, Judaism believes it. <laughs> you know, so it's pretty much understood. So, so what I'm going to answer to you now as the three ways to connect to him are basically what the Rambam said. And what he said, and I'm going to give you an overview, and then we're going to basically go down into each of the three different areas. Um, so, first of all, he said, number one is by learning the Torah. So, I know that doesn't come as a shock to a lot of people, <laughs> but the Torah is, in essence, as I've heard said before, a blueprint for the creation of the world. Basically, God looked into the Torah, and he created the world. It's like the DNA of the world, is the best way to say it. So it stands to reason that looking at the DNA of how the world was created would lead us ultimately to understand God. In other words, it's almost like God's mind or God's thoughts. We can't, by its very essence, turn around and say, God, pour your mind into my mind. I want to know who you are, what you're trying to do, what do you, what's it all about? Instead, we have to use the book or, or the, the words that he created that were given to us and to understand those. Okay, that's number one. Number two is, is mitzvahs. I know another shocker. <laughs> mitzvahs. Um, and the mitzvahs are basically, um, we'll go into that in a second, the connection that, that we have to God physically. And finally, it's um, exactly what Bobby Lee said. Um, looking at God's universe, looking at the world and the creation of the complexity and the brilliance of the world around us, um, if somebody sits and they think and they ponder the depths of it, they'll recognize that there's no way that some, you know, man could have um, randomly, well, that, that no way man could have done it, there's no way it could have randomly occurred, which is, um, well, break those down a little bit more in detail. But the big picture is Torah, mitzvahs, and the essence of looking at the world around us. Um, so, so, I was talking to Rabbi Wolby. He wanted um, me to say something connecting it back to your previous lectures. So, he was saying, um, ascending, he, you, you just learned about ascending the ten levels of Amuna, Correct. Okay, um, so he wanted to say that that is the primary goal of a Jew, is to go up those levels. The essence of what this lecture is about is how do we go up those levels. So just to tie it in, I'm trying to keep the big picture in line, otherwise you can get lost in the details. Um, to recognize how did these great people, well, actually I wasn't here for the lectures. Could Tell me some of the people who he mentioned, some of the great rabbis or the great people that he mentioned. Folks from Abraham, Moses, uh, really the, I think the, the patriarchs. Your, your, your connection is excellent. Yeah. Oh, yeah, good? It fits well? Yeah. Okay, good. Worry, you don't have to worry about that. You're right on. Okay, good. Fact, all right, thank you. You're filling in some blanks that you need not have been here all the time. You know, just one sentence here and there, you know, 
fills in a lot of blanks for me. So it's okay, good. Perfect. All right, thank you. All right. So, so I guess what we're saying is basically, I don't know if he did this in his lecture, but I'm, how do you do it? The question is, how do you get Amuna? How do you move up those levels? How did they move up those levels? So they say, by, by, by just getting back to the third one, the universe, they say Abraham, Abraham looked at the world, which is an incredible idea, that he looked at the world and he recognized there must be a creator. Okay? So, you know, each one used a different method and a different style for themselves to raise up that level of connection and, and Amuna. So, I wanted to also, so first I wanted to talk now, hammer down a little bit into Torah. Um, as I said before, Torah, as they, they say, is, the, is God's infinite wisdom. I want to use an example of, um, well, just to get started, there's a, a few concepts that I know about Torah that I think are beautiful that I'm just going to share. One is, um, they say Torah is connected to, is, is connected to water. Torah is like water. So, wh- why is Torah like water? Can anyone think of a reason? It's not, it's not, it's not logical per se, so I'll, I'll say it. If anyone. So, water in a teacup is water. Water in a stream is water. You're saying it stays... You cannot live without water. It's refreshing. That's beautiful. You cannot live without water. It's refreshing. It's refreshing. That's, that's nice and also. Water percolates pretty much everything. Oh, very good. Water is the essence of life. There's no human life. There's nothing without water, right? So here's a, here's a neat idea also, um, that wa- what is what is it about water? I have water in my cup right now. If I drip this on the to the side, where's it going to go? Is it going to go up or is it going to go down? It's going to go down, right? Water falls to its lowest point. Why does water fall to its lowest point? Well, it does because of gravity. But Torah similarly goes a person who's got his own personal ego and thinks he's the greatest teacher in the history of mankind. He, Torah is not, is not going to normally flow to that person. It's going to flow to a person who's, who recognizes, as we said before, that a person recognizes that it's not through just their... Don't get me wrong, as we said. It is your efforts, but it's your efforts and it's from God. So Moses was known as the most humble person who ever lived. And it's no coincidence that he had the most Torah, that God basically told him the, virtually the entire Torah. It's because he didn't, you know, we know we have examples of it. He didn't want to speak. He kept saying, why are you picking me, God? Pick my brother Aaron. You know, he speaks better. I can barely talk. I have a lisp or whatever. I, I can't talk that way. Or, or he just kept pushing. It's not me. It's not me. So it, it's not a coincidence that, that God gave Torah to somebody who kept himself low because he recognized, he created a vessel for, for, to recognize that it was really God. So that's one aside about water. Another idea, if we're talking about water, is a, a beautiful example, Mashal, is, is that... Um, Torah is like the ocean. That the idea is when you step into to the ocean, you're first stepping, like go, go to, um, I don't want to make us go to the, 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 um, the beaches here because they're not as beautiful. So let's all go <laughs> off. Let's go to Tahiti. Step into a beautiful crystal clear water in, in Tahiti. Um, you, you first step in, and it seems very shallow. Like you first step into the Torah, you, you read a simple passage in the Torah in English, Right, <laughs> or maybe read the Christian Bible translation, whatever, and it says, "Oh, that's a nice, that's cute, that's nice." Okay, I, I can get something out of that, you know. It's, it, but I can understand. And like me, I, I was raised in. I had a, I had my bar mitzvah, and I that was the end of my connection to religion until I got older. Um, so you know, I thought I knew. Oh, I, I know Judaism. You know, I, I learned it. I know it. Right. So that it's it's it, it's shallow. In in essence, you can feel that way because when you're stepping in the shallow water, but as you step deeper and deeper. 
and you learn depths, the depths of it and get deeper and deeper and it becomes incredibly vast. And we recognize that the ocean is probably, it's the deepest thing, obviously, on Earth. And, like, you know, how many leagues does the sea go down to the deepest parts? So you recognize that, that that's really the essence of Torah. As much as you, put, as we said before, put the effort in, and as much as you spend your time studying a passage and learning an interpretation of it, learning it in the original Hebrew with somebody, maybe, or learning it, um, you know, on, we know that Torah, Torah has different levels. There's this thing called pardes, there's, there's parshat, remez, sod, and drasha. There's, basically, Torah can be learned on the simple level. Just read the passage, what does it mean? But then there's also a hint behind it. There's also a secret from Kabbalah behind it. Every, you know, I don't understand Kabbalah. But I do. I have learned enough people who fr- from who have learned from Kabbalah to recognize the incredible beauty and the depth of every passage in Torah as it goes down lower and lower and lower. So, so that so Torah itself is like the ocean because Torah is like water, and the ocean gets deeper and deeper. And the more we spend time learning, so there's a there's a Gemara. Rabbi Wolby and I were looking at this together about the famous Rabbi Akiva. Has anyone heard of Rabbi Akiva? Yeah. So Rabbi Akiva was probably the Somebody said, um, I think I've heard that he's one, known as one of the greatest sages of our time as far compared to, to Moses, almost. Um, and um, so he, there's a Gomorrah where he is basically, comes up with this brilliant analysis of Yivamos, Yivam. Uh, and, and he's talking to another rabbi, and the rabbi says to him, he says to him a, st- a statement, and it comes back that basically he says that, listen, you might think I'm brilliant and I came up with these proofs to, for everything, but really I'm just a shepherd, like, in, in, the, in the world. And really, I'm, like, he just, he basically separates himself out, and the Gomorrah, the whole purpose of the Gomorrah is to show how the, one of the greatest sages, if not the, one of the greatest sages of our time, basically wants the world to know that he is so lowly in the world of Torah. So... It happens to be that when, you, when I, I'm speaking for myself, when I first stepped into Torah, I thought, oh, this is cute, this is nice, right? And that's where it ended. I was in the shallow waters there. But as I went to learn in Israel, actually, and I learned from some great sages, and I saw the depth and the beauty of it, and now, the more I learn, the more, and I'm not being cute, the more I recognize that I know so little, and I'm blown away by it. So that's the essence of what Torah is, which is another proof to the idea that there's so much there that we can put our time and our effort into, and our energy into, in order to, as I said before, to get rid of the Nehemiah de Kasufa, to get rid of the, the bread of shame, but to earn that faith in God. Uh, the, and so I want to give an example of something that I thought, everyone has something that connects with them in Torah. But here's a Torah concept that I thought was really neat, and, and I find it, um, it runs on many levels through um, Torah, and that, it sort of helped me with my Amunah. So there's, there's an idea of threes in Judaism. There's basically, you find many pairs of three. And there's a famous sage, the Maharal, who says it's not a coincidence because he, sa- he says basically, well, well the, there's, a, there's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, which there's a, pa- there's a passage in, um, in the, something called the Ethics of Our Fathers. Have you guys learned that at all, Ethics of Our Fathers? Yeah, it's, a be- it's a beautiful, beautiful book to learn about how to, to live in the world um, from the Torah sages. It's, it's God's words as well. But he says in that, that basically, the, that Al Shloshad Devarim, upon three things, you might have heard this before, yeah. the world was created. Because anyone, can anyone say it? Al Shloshad Devarim? Beautiful. That, that's exactly right. Al HaTorah, which is what we're talking about now. 
Hal ha'avoda. These are the three things the world stands on, we're saying. Torah, avoda, and we're going to connect the next one we're going to talk about for connecting to God is mitzvahs. We're going to say that can be connected to avoda, which is service of God. And gimilus chasidim, gimilut chasidim, is, um, is loving kindness. And that's, I think you can make the argument that that's looking at Hashem's, at God's universe and the kindness that He gave to us by, by creating such a beautiful world and that He gives to us so much. Um, I'll talk later about the eyeball, like the brilliance of the eyeball. And like, it's a huge kindness that we have the ability to see colors. And we have like, so it all sort of connects together. So this is the idea, this is the Torah concept I wanted to bring up. So threes happen all the time. So, so the Maharal, which is a sage who lived in the 1600s, has the ability to sort of take the Kabbalah aspects and make them simple so you can understand them. Somewhat simple, I should say. Simpler than Kabbalah. He says this idea that, that you notice, if, if I were to take this table right now and I were to yank off two of those legs, what would happen to the table? Smash down, right? Okay? So right now it's standing on four legs. Let me ask you a question. If I could pull one of the legs off and push this leg in the middle, would this table stand? Right, so the nature, of the, physical, the nature of the world is that the lowest thing that things can stand on is three. So this concept of three happens a lot in Judaism. Can anyone think of other threes that we have in Judaism? Three the festivals, the Beautiful, festival, the three festivals. And yeah, so Shavuot, Shavuot Sukkot, which is like, like simple stories. Well, sh- well, There's three walking festivals. Shalosh, Shalosh, right, Shalosh Ragalim. Sukkot is one, right? Mm-hmm. Shavuot is one. Mm-hmm. And Pesach, yeah, beautiful. Okay, and then we have the three Avos, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So anyway, the point is this idea of three as being like the essence, my my rabbi used to call it the tertium quid. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds really cool in Latin, right? Um, So that that three is the essence, and we find these threes running through a bunch of things. So, So just to go into one, and then I'll move on. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham, Abraham, repid... He represents chesed, or kindness, because his whole life was about basically bringing people closer to God. He, he opened his tent wide, and him and his wife, Sarah, Sarah would, all they did is want to, 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 to feed people, make people feel comfortable, to give and give and give, because that's what God does to us, and he wanted to show the world that. So he represents kindness. So um, Yitzchak, Jake, uh, Isaac, was in many ways, personality-wise, the exact opposite. Whereas Abraham was all about running around and trying to convince people of the beauty of Judaism and becoming Jewish, you know. Um, Isaac was the person who sat in the, the, the study hall, the base midrash, all day and just said, leave me alone, I just want to learn God's law and I want to get it down perfect, I don't want to get anything wrong. So that is known as din or strict, strict justice. So we have kindness on the right, which it really is on the right, the right hand, and we have strict justice or din on the left. Okay, these are two opposites, basically. You know, it, you see it with people. Some people are the warmest people in the world. But when it comes, if they're too warm, when it comes to it, it's hard for them to put their foot down and take a stand, right? And then some people are very strict. You know, I'm a lawyer, so I see this a lot, especially since I'm not this way. <laughs> um, 
a lot of people that I go, this is the rule, this is the regulation, this is, and they don't seem like the warmest people in the world. They don't seem like the friendliest people. But if you want to get someone to solve a problem for you, right, or if you want to get someone to be necessarily your lawyer, and you should still hire me, by the way, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> if you want to get somebody to be your lawyer, you want somebody who can sit, get cut through it all and get down to the essence. These are two opposite extremes. So in Judaism, we usually, and the Rambam says this, we believe in taking the middle path, right? So what was Jacob? What was Yaakov? Yaakov was emis, or truth, and that was taking this extreme and that extreme, and this child came out to be able to incorporate the kindness and the warmth, but do it in a way that also incorporates the strict justice, and that's why you get basically this idea of two opposites. So, so this idea, first of all, did that make sense? Yes. Okay, this idea, it's very, to me it's very powerful, because you can look at the world and you can see, for, forget, forget Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Forget talking about Torah just for a second. You can look at the world and you can notice those personality traits in people. And you can say, if you see somebody who's a little bit off in a certain thing, you can say, oh, maybe he's, he's, too, he's too, 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 too strict in his life. And maybe he's not warm enough to his wife to understand where she's coming from, right? Or you could go the opposite side. You could say, you see someone who's like the nicest person in the world, but their whole life is, you know, you know, is is out of whack. They're, you know, following the Grateful Dead around, and and right, and, and Jerry Garcia has already passed away, and they're still following the Grateful Dead around. You know, I, that's what I used to do, by the way. But um, um, I thought it was Gavura, not Din. That was the opposite. Oh, uh, so that means the same thing. Beautiful. Okay. Gavura is 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 strength. It's, it's, it, they don't mean the exact same thing, okay. but they are categorized together. It's more of a restriction of. Loving kindness. Right. Which I always sort of take into account with parenting. Oh, like if all you use loving kindness to your kid, they end up growing up being spoiled. That's right. Actually... you got to sort of balance out. The, the balance in Kabbalah is beauty. Right. That, oh, yeah, T. Ferris yeah. Is, is beauty. Right. And they're, they're all sort of the same thing. We can talk okay. more about that later. But they are categorized together. So they're, they're, on this exact note, and we'll move on past this. So, so I'm just saying, this idea I find in the world... In so many places and so what I'm saying to you is it's it comes from Torah and I recognize that like what a brilliance behind it so so since it touches me and my everyone's gonna have something in Torah that's gonna touch their soul that relates to them this is something that I like I love studying people's personalities so this is something that connects to me what you're saying right there I just want to say one last thing but I don't know if you guys know I'm just gonna I don't embarrass Rabbi Welby with him him being here but you probably know his grandfather is a very famous rabbi um, in, I'll, I'll just say that like I studied in Israel for two and a half, three years and pretty much everyone I knew would say his, gra his grandfather was one of the greatest sages when it comes to working on our personality he probably was the greatest sage of our, uh, of our generation the previous generation there's nobody like him he was incredible like, so I, like, when I moved to Houston I couldn't believe I was learning with his grandson that's how great this person but he, he wrote a book called Planting and Building Okay, and this book, Planting and Building, it was written in Hebrew, but it's now it's actually translated in, into English. If anybody's interested, I can tell you how to get it. It's the most amazing parenting book ever written, and it talks about the idea when you plant something, right? So how the, when you plant something, does it come sprout out of the ground immediately? No. So when you plant something, you have to water it, and you have to be patient, and you have to prune it, and take your time with it. Okay. So he's talking about this in terms of parenting. So that's the type of love you have to show for a child. You have to, you know, prune it, and you, you know, a little bit here, a little bit. You have to know how to do it because if you cut too much, if you're too 
harsh. I think of my son. I, I want him to go pray. I push him. You got to go pray. You got to go pray. Sometimes it's too much. Sometimes you just back off and just be normal. You know what I mean? Let your kid be a kid. You know. So at the same time, if you're too much that way, then basically your kid is gonna talk back to you. I mean, they're gonna do that anyway. But they're they're, they're going to not have the balance, and that comes from. I just talked about planting. That comes from building. When a person builds a building, he needs a... What does he need? Anyone here into building or... Beautiful. What did you say? Permit. Foundation. You're, you're already... A blue, and a blueprint. Right? You need plans. Right? And, but you, you, you need a foundation as well. And, and exactly. Solid foundation. And that's... that's so, so let's tie in this concept that I, that's saying. Oh, just to finish that thought before I jump off. So if, if you do that, you will build a child who will be potentially obedient. But it could go too far. Right? You don't, well, you don't want them to be obedient. Ah, right? because he'll become be, what? I mean, a robot, right? Yeah, You're going to create yeah, a little they'll, robot. They'll end up being robots, they'll end up being taken advantage of, or they will end up very angry and adversarial and ultimately rebellious. I mean, you don't know which way it's going to go. Beautiful. But I would not set obedience as an overarching quality. That, Ig, I would want to that is so beautiful. That's exactly what he says in the yeah. book. You create little robots, and it works for a little while, but as soon as the kid can get away from you, yeah. he's gone. Yeah. Well, well, I will. Thank you. Um, but no, it's kind of it, well, and it's the idea of you don't want to focus. You know, a lot of people get distracted on having, on focusing on having good children when in reality what you want is a good adult. And a lot of times, what makes a good child makes a very weak and sad or opposite um, angry and unpleasant adult. And so if you can, if you can kind of walk through the fray of childhood with a goal of a good, well-rounded, strong adult being what you're working towards, then it's a little easier to weather those storms. Beautiful. So how would, so based on what I've said to you so far, how would you think you did that, you would do that? No, if you're planting, no, no. Well, I don't <laughs> I know how you I actually do it because I have to speak to myself. Like, but yeah. uh, so no, so okay, so so right, but so you need that framework, okay? Yeah. So what does he say in this book? He says basically, you need. Remember what I said before? You have chesed, which uh-huh. is planting and love and kindness. Right. You have right planting, kindness and love. You've got. Din, which is strict justice, which is that foundation. You've got to teach your kid to brush his teeth or he's not going to have any teeth anymore, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You'd have to blend them together, yeah. which is, we said before, was Jacob or Yaakov, yeah. which is truth. The yeah. truth is it's both. Yeah. It's both of them, and you have to know when to apply each one. Because if you do too much of one, you have a hippie, which is nothing wrong with that because I still love the Grateful Dead. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, and I'm not kidding. Well, I am kidding. But, um, but um, the... But you can't have too much strict justice or your kid is going to rebel, you know? So you have to basically be sensitive and think, which is really what Judaism is about. Use your mind to recognize, to pay attention. Now I need to put a little bit of kindness here. Now I need to water him a little bit. Well, it's about building a relationship. Right. Ultimately, it it is whether it's a relationship with God or it's a relationship with people. It's about having that underlying, that relationship and that the total environment is one of loving kindness and respect. And it's only once you're within that world that you can give someone structure and discipline and have them accept it. Beautiful. That's exactly right. You might be interested in this book, though, by the way. It's, it's really, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. It's really beautiful. What, what was the name of it? It's called Planting and Building, or, or Zria, Zria Ubinyan. But we can, I'll try to basically, 
Is like, it English? It's in English. It, Rabbi Kellerman translated it, Rabbi okay. Leib Kellerman. You can Google Rabbi Leib Kellerman, L-E-I-B Kellerman, and probably find it on Amazon. But I'm sure Rabbi Wolby has a, he should have a copy. If not, okay. I'll let you guys borrow mine. Um, okay, so, and there's, okay, so there's one last thing I wanted to say. I'm just going to speak about me, because that's what I know best is me. But um, this is something that touched me, and what, what I became religious after law school, actually. Um, something that touched me, and I just thought it would be nice to share. So I went to, you were talking about, we were talking about trust fund children before, right? So I went to school in Beverly, Hill, Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills High School. I was not one of the rich kids. I wasn't poor, but related to them, I probably was poor. But they started busing in my school district when I was young. I went to LA School District. My father happened to teach in Beverly Hills. So I, um, I was in order to avoid being bussed into a bad neighborhood, my family was able to convince the Beverly Hills schools, even though he worked there part-time, that we should be able to go to school there. So I went to school there. So I was like this outsider kid who didn't have as much money as the other kid, who hung out with all the rich kids and saw kind of the way they looked at the world. In other words, they had everything that everyone around me wanted, but I just sort of saw how miserable many of them were. They had the BMWs at age 16. They had this, they, you know, I know I had my Toyota Corolla, but I had a car. <laughs> um, and, and I was a little jealous, but the point was I saw they weren't necessarily happy, and they were working so hard to do well in school, a lot, most of them, um, because it was a very good academic school. But I was thinking to myself, why? Like, they've already got it. Like, what are they, what's it all about, right? So that's what, that's what struck me. So I was a little bit disillusioned, okay? Um, luckily, I did it in a healthy way. I became an athlete. I ran cross-country, whatever, and I, I stayed to myself, okay? The point is like this. I always felt like an outsider, like I didn't fit in that world. I once grabbed a book when I was becoming interested uh, by a, an author, a, a great rabbi also named Rabbi Dessler, who wrote a whole example on loving kindness and, and the Jewish perspective and, and, and the Jewish, basically he, he's one of the greatest Jewish thought writers there is. It's translated in English, it's called Strive for Truth, it's an incredible book. So this book changed my life. I picked up the book. Basically, he started off by saying two things that struck me that I wanted to share with you. One is, he started off by saying that, that what is love? Basically, so I had grown up, like all of us, um, not all of us, but most of us, to think of love as, as this wild, passionate thing that, like, you see this person and all of a sudden, like, hearts start popping up around you, right? That's what I thought of love as, okay? But the reality of the situation was I wasn't feeling that. You know, when I was dating people, I was like... I was feeling like a normal person. <laughs> so he wrote this thing that blew me away. He basically said the, the word ahava, what the word for love is ahava, right? So ahava has the shorish or the root of hav. Hav means to give. So basically love from the Jewish perspective is about you, not you getting, but it's about you giving. And things that you give to in your life are things that you love. That's why we love our children so much. We spend day in, day out worrying and giving and caring for our children. So there's no greater love than a, than a child from a parent, really. Like, the truth is, it's said that the, the parent loves the child more than the child loves the parent. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure the child loves the parent. But this is, comes from this idea, the child's not giving to the parent. The child's receiving, kind of this Nehama de Kasufo thing we were talking about, about, about the bread of shame. The child is getting, right? But we... We have to, so when I, when I hit, when this hit me, it blew me away. 
because I'm like, this is the Jewish concept of love. This is how I'm supposed to believe about love. The idea is I'm not supposed to feel this magical heart's you know, there is, we all know that there's something called lust and passion, don't get me wrong. But the reality of the situation is when that wears off, love comes from us giving to that person. Like that idea, like I was, when I saw that idea, I said, that is brilliant. Like it's something we all know as people, but no one ever said it to me before. So I read that. That was, that was the first thing. The second thing that I read that blew me away related to my, what I was saying before. Basically said, he said in, in the beginning of the story, he said, the rich man is not happy because he has everything he's want, he wants, but his children are insolent, disrespectful, and all they want really, I'm saying that all the time, he's speaking in extremes, is basically the money, right? Because they're so used to you know, seeing the money, waiting to get it. The poor man's not happy because he wants to be like the rich man. So here's the thing that blew me away. He says basically the middle class man is not necessarily happy either. You know, because he also wants to be like the rich man. He thinks he just has to work a little bit harder. So I was just like, wait a second. I was seeing this in my life, and to see it in writing blew me away. Basically, you know, wait a second. Most of us in America, I'm speaking for myself now. I'll speak. I thought the happiness would be would be from basically working hard, being successful, getting straight A's, going to Harvard, and you know, getting a big house. And you know, the reality is, I knew I, I lived with these people in these huge mansions in Beverly Hills, and and they were my friends. Don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing them, but the reality of the situation was, you can't buy happiness 100%. At the end of the day, you know what makes you happy is striving for something that you believe in, and 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 having a purpose in your life and having meaning. So I was blown away by that, that this was in a Jewish writing and this was a Jewish concept. And so, I don't know, that, that's really what kind of made me religious, um, reading this book. It didn't say it happened overnight, but it, it, it triggered something in my mind, getting back to the big picture here, that in Torah is basically incredible depth of wisdom. And I was like the kind of person who was obsessed with wisdom. I loved, I was very nostalgic for the old world, you know. So I just, all I wanted to do was learn as much as I could and feel and hear as much as I could. Okay, getting back to what we're saying. So how, do you, how does a person connect to God? A person has to find the thing in Torah, just like I found the thing that connected to me. There's 70 faces of Torah, they say. Everybody has their own connection. What connected to me is based on my experience in my life. It's not necessarily going to connect to, to people in this room, but it is there. The Torah is so deep. If you look for something, you'll find something, and I'm sure Rabbi Wolby has said something, that has touched you in a way that, that a meaningful way. Okay, so that's Torah. Um, the next thing is mitzvahs. So I don't have as many personal stories about mitzvahs, but I will say that mitzvahs are basically our manifestation of what God wants us to do in this world. If we want to connect to God, we know we live in this physical world where, as I said before, it's not so easy to connect to God. In other words, when I, when I um, step outside and I say to myself, you know, I want to touch God, I want to feel God, it doesn't happen. But the reality of the situation is, as much as we talked before about doing things and working on things um, that are physical, it draws us away to think that it's coming from our own hands and basically it makes us less spiritual in some ways unless we stop and we recognize that even the physical can be raised up to God. So mitzvahs, in a way, are God's, literally the word mitzvah means sabe, it means a command to command or to connect. Another word, actually, it also means to connect, which is a brilliant idea. He's commanded us to do things so we can connect to him, which is what we're saying right here. Um, 
And so what do you do? You basically take something physical um, and you say a blessing upon it and you basically stop to say, you know what, this is from God too. And you raise that thing up, which is really the purpose of why we're here. That's why man was put on this, on this earth, is basically to take all these physical things and to make them holy in a way. That's our job as Jews, is to make things holy. When we light candles Friday night, we take a candle and we turn it into something holy. If we say, um, we, if we shake a lulav um, on sukkahs, like Rabbi Wobi likes to say, if anyone were to look at you, they'd say you're completely insane. What are you doing shaking this like palm frond? Like, and the truth is, like when I first saw it, I, I, not the truth, I, I still think it's crazy, I'll be honest. You know? Like, like to, to fill in too, is it, like, if you put, has anyone seen to fill in what it looks like? When I first saw it to fill in, I'm like, what is that? Like, get it away from me. <laughs> but the reality of the situation, when you learn that it's God's word and it's there, it's your way of taking God's word and connecting it to your brain and putting it next to your heart. All these things are ways of taking physical manifestations of things that we have in this world. The greatest example of all is, you know, is food. Well, what else is there but food in this world, right? My wife is an amazing cook, and, um, you know, she, you know, on the Sabbath, basically, I'll just give you an example of our, of our Sabbath. Um, and mind you, you should know that I didn't even know what the Sabbath was before I became religious. I was very not religious. <laughs> um, but Friday night, basically after a whole week of working and um, you know putting in my effort and to, I learned Torah during the week too a couple, an hour a day I spend time with my family my five children young children um, i on the board like I, I do a bunch of different things it's a very hard week but then you get to, and, and, you're, and how many times are you checking your iPhone and you're checking that, like your whole life is enmeshed in work like you're just like basically you don't even think about like, I'll be honest I don't think about spiritual things as much as I should that's for sure however on Friday night when the sun goes down, right before the sun goes down, you know, we light candles, and that's it. You put your phone away, I put my phone away, and, like, I'm free. Like, for one day, no matter, as much as I want to, and I know myself, like, if, if this wasn't the rule, I would check my phone. I know myself, because I just, I worry about things, you know? Like, for 25 hours straight, I do not touch a telephone. My children do not touch their video games, you know? <laughs> they put down... Um, you know, whatever it is, the eye device they're using. And we sit and we learn the type of wisdom we're talking about. Uh, we have incredible family meals together and we spend time, all the things that people used to do, that's pretty what, what struck me about become, wanting to become religious. I was blown away by the fact that people spent time with their family. Like, I was like, wait, how do you do that? Because no one does that anymore, you know? And so, okay, so all of that is because the Sabbath is surrounded by mitzvahs and rules and regulations that stop you, which really, they feel. let's be honest, they feel very restrictive. I'm not going to lie. They feel like, wait a second, I, why do you tell me what to do? I should be able to do what I want to do. But it's only through, I'm talking for myself 100%, only through those restrictions that I'm freed, basically, from what I would really not want to do, what I really would do is pick up my phone and I would basically run around and do another business deal or whatever it is so that is that's through god's brilliant wisdom and i'm not telling i'm not here to god forbid i'm not here to tell people they have to become religious that's not what i'm here for at all i'm just speaking about the idea of how i recognize every mitzvah a person does i'm talking about any mitzvah um that a person does brings them closer to god bridges this gap that we keep talking about because god in his infinite wisdom understood that these are the ways to connect to him 
So whatever you pick, there's 613 mitzvahs, though not all of them are, are relevant today. Uh, you pick the ones that, that touch you. Not in a perfect world, you know, someone would keep all of them. But one more than you did before is what matters. And that mitzvah that you do, you recognize that there's some incredible wisdom to it, then you get closer to God. You create that connection that we're talking about that doesn't happen without work. That's the work that we're talking about. Finally, anyone have any questions? Like how I can talk this fast without taking a break? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, without, the, without coffee, let's, let's do it. I, the truth is, if I had coffee, you'd really be in trouble. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so the last thing I wanted to, to talk about is, is, the, the, myth, is um, the universe. And um, I re- this is something that really, Rabbi Wobbe and I have a little argument now and then because Rabbi Wobbe learns Torah so beautifully. I learn Torah, not as beautifully, but I try. I like learning Torah. I love it. Don't get me wrong. But um, I, I want to say that all three of these things are equal. He wants to say learning Torah is really important, and he's, he's probably right. But everyone touch, the God touches you in a way that needs to be touched. You. I, I, I keep coming back to you, what you said, Bobby Lee, that, that you feel God's presence when you look at the world, right? Is that what you were saying? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I want to talk about now. And I want to say that there's a famous rabbi, Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, who lived in the 19th century in Germany. Um, he said a most, one of the most beautiful things. This is something I'm talking from my heart. Now, when I went to, to yeshiva, and when I went to learn Torah in Israel, I was not one of these people who was going to sit in the room and just learn eight hours a day you know, it's just not who I am. You know, I, I have to run around and do things. I have to, I, I love learning, but it has to be in the context of being a real person and being out in the world and living. So, the, so when I heard this phrase, and mind you, I was around people who were learning all the time. Um, when I heard this phrase, it blew me away. So Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch is quoted as saying, and mind you, he's an incredibly brilliant sage. He's saying, he's, I guess somebody asked him, he went out to see the, the Swiss Alps, uh, instead of learning, one time he went on vacation or whatever to do that. And they asked him, how could you take away time from learning Torah to go out to the Swiss Alps like that? And he says, when I get up to the world to come, you know, God's going to ask me, the first thing, one of the first things he's going to ask me is, did you see my Alps? <laughs> I love that term. I was like, like, that is so beautiful. Like, Hashem, God created the most incredible depth of the, the world, so much beauty. Like, basically, he didn't do it just, you know, per se. He did it for us so we could recognize that God created the world and that we could recognize the brilliance of God and the beauty of God. And when you, like, I personally, I absolutely love this, the Southwest. I love going to like Zion National Park and places like that because a person is, you're, you're awed when you see those type of, you know, incredible physical structures. You can't believe that like they exist in this world. And um, I think that's a manifestation of this idea. So a person should, it, it, they, they can take that action of going to see it and not just say, oh, that's great, that's nice. They can say, wow, look what God created. And they basically connect to God. They basically do what, what you are doing, and they do exactly what it is that, that we say is so hard to do. So it's an interesting question. Why is that hard to do? You know, if I see a beautiful sunset, I should instantly think of God. But the reality is you kind of have to remind yourself, right? Because that's not the first thing necessarily you would do. So it does take effort to do that too, to pull it back and to recognize that, wait, like, I always think to myself, why is the sunset beautiful? Now I'm going to get real philosophical. Like we, 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 we perceive a sunset as beautiful, right? Or we perceive, you know, the Grand Canyon as incredible. But like, why is that, you know? 
It doesn't have to be that way. It could be that Houston is beautiful. I'm just kidding. I, my, my wife and I fight about that all the time. Houston is not the most beautiful city for me. Whatever. <laughs> so um, it could no, be that. Yeah, actually, it has its beautiful parts. That's for sure. But um, I'm just I, I tease her about it because I went to UC Santa Barbara, and I lived in Jerusalem, and so I'm used to living in different places. So whatever, it's beautiful because my wife lives here. That's what I should say. <laughs> it's got that on the tape. I'm gonna email that in a second. Um, <laughs> he pay us to say that. <laughs> subdivision, we live way out in the country, and we have a, a man in our subdivision who has created a website called Big Thicket Critters, mm -hmm. and he's got sections on it for reptiles and bugs and birds and all kinds of, the bugs, which I can't stand bugs <laughs> of any kind, but it just, it blows my mind to think, and he's taken pictures of all these kinds of little bugs that we have up in there and some really smidgens and I look at it and I think oh God created and thought of all this stuff right. mm -hmm. that's exactly what I'm saying you could not have said it better you really couldn't have. I wanted to, to read you something on, on that exact note that, that I thought was very powerful um Again, going back to Victor Miller, Rabbi Victor Miller, who I told you about. Um, so this may get long and boring. Please interrupt me if it gets boring, but it's not too long. And, um, he says, basically, he, he, he chose at random the phenomenon of selective, selectivity of perception. Consider the fact of the remarkable gaps in the nervous system. The nervous system is not continuous, but is regularly interrupted by gaps or synapses. The function of the synapses is to prevent weak sensations from reaching the brain. The providential arrangement protects the brain from constant bombardment by every tiny <coughs> stimulus. Weak electric impulses are unable to leap the gaps, and only the important stimuli can create electric impulses which are strong enough to cross the gaps and arrive at the brain. Another example is the retina of the human eye. There are 100 million light receptors. However, they are attached to only 1 million nerve endings, which means for every 100 light receptors, there's only one nerve by which they send their message to the brain. Therefore, in order to travel by way of, by, of way of nerve to the brain, a light sensation must be strong enough to activate 100 light receptors. This arrangement prevents constant bombardment of the brain by every negligible light sensation. And such arrangements are such arrangements a result of accident, and their number is endless. And he goes on. And he basically goes through what the, the eye, the eyeball, um, he says, just one more thing he says about it is, um, the living organism, according to the, wait, hold on. So what year was this written? This was written in 1980. Is this interesting enough that I should read it? I think so. Okay. All right, so he says, the living organism, according to the fantasies of theorists, ought to, have, ought to be encumbered by countless deformities and useless functions, all the results of purposeful accident and waiting their turn to be eliminated by the process of natural selection. The acad academ academicians um, cannot claim that the genes of today no longer possess the accidental versatility of the genes of the mythical long ago. But it is all a vain dream. The creator founded the world for, 
with wisdom, and the world is built with kindness. He's quoting um, Psalms. No organism alive or in its fossil state demonstrates chaos or randomness. Every organ and function and instinct demonstrates only kindly purposeness, purposefulness. Such intelligent purposefulness is on, evident on all sides. Consider the eye. It is a color camera. It focuses automatically according to the distance of the object. The lens adjusts its degree of curvature as necessary. The eye turns in the direction which it is needed. The two eyes function like two perfectly synchronized cameras to form one picture in the brain. The iris controls the width of the entering light beam to admit more or less light as the circumstances require. The pressure of the eye liquor, this is incredible, is always precisely enough to maintain the proper shape of the eyeball. The lens is a living tissue which miraculously metamorphized into transparent material which serves more efficiently than the best man-made product. Now that blows me away. If you think about it, like they, you know, Zeiss and Sony and all these companies, all they're trying to do is come up with the most amazing lens and the most megapixels. All, they're nowhere near the human eye. Apple is so excited to tell you that they came out with their, and I love Apple, don't get me wrong, their 4K screen, their 5K screen. Also the human eye, you know, to make it so that the human eye, they, they're trying to reach the, they're, they're nowhere near us. Right, what, what was given to us, and we're supposed to believe that this happened randomly. So, I don't know, I'm, I, I'll just say that I was never the type of person to be blown away by this before, but if you sit and you ponder it, it really is hard to, to, to recognize. Um, he go, the one thing he says also that's really powerful, is he, and I'll just skip ahead to it, he says, um, all this, and all this is a result of pure chance, according to the evolutionists. The best that we can say to explain the marvelous adaptions is that they are the result of, ac of accident. He's quoting a, a book called The Philosophy of Science. Not only did the accident of the eye happen by mere chance, but the accident occurred three separate times. At three different occasions, the theorists unashamedly declared the eye arose in three entirely unrelated families. The anthropods, who are insects, crabs, and spiders, your good friends. The, the mollusks, the octopus and the squid, and the vertebrates. There is no connection in the evolutionary sense between any of these three groups. In other words, this happened randomly in three separate groups. Like. I mean, it, it gives me the chills sometimes, like, I don't want to read anymore, I, just, I give up, you know? <laughs> I have to actually start doing things now, no? <laughs> but um, anyway, that's the point I'm trying to say. If you look at God's world, and this is the key to everything I'm saying here. Okay, I'm just going to say, like, to wrap things up, the reality of all of this I'm telling you is, like, I go to these lectures, I don't usually give lectures, I go to these lectures a lot, and I get inspired by what a rabbi or a person says to me, right? And then you go home, and you're like, that's nice, you know? <laughs> but we're real people, and that's what this lecture is about. We are real human beings, and God, this is what I'm trying to say today. God created us, so you're, spo you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to go home, and you're supposed to say, that was nice. I was inspired then, but whatever, I have work to do. I have stuff to take, I have kids to take. I have like, that's what you're supposed to do. That's how God created the world. But, but the, the answer is not to stop there. The answer is that God gave us three ways to do the work right to put the effort in otherwise if we got it free it, we'd be embarrassed and we wouldn't earn it for whatever reason god created the world that way one could argue maybe he shouldn't have created that world that way the reality is that is how the world is created and he gave us three different ways to inspire ourselves on our own and that takes effort basically an example so to bring it down to how we can relate to this i'll just speak to myself now when it comes to torah 
So I find things in Torah, I was saying to you before, I really, I, mean, I, I wish I could learn Kabbalah. I recognize I can't learn Kabbalah, it's beyond me. So I learned the Maharal, because the Maharal is someone who takes Kabbalah and he makes it in a way that you, people can understand it. So I learned with Rabbi Wolby. That's how we ended up doing, I ended up doing this lecture. We learned the Maharal together. Um, and I love it. Like, it, it, I walk away and I feel closer to God. I feel spiritual. That's what touches me. People here need to find something in the Torah that touches them. And when they pick it up, they'll feel a little bit after, hey, I made, I made a step closer to connecting to the Creator. Mitzvah is fine. You also have to find a mitzvah that means a lot to you. I said, like, the, the, the Sabbath means a lot to me. Maybe it's lighting candles for a, a woman. Maybe it's whatever it is, you find your mitzvah where you're like, wow, God must have really created this idea. I, on the Sabbath, I sit there and I think, like, this is brilliant. Like, I, I'm so glad I have it. You know, I'm almost embarrassed because, like, I would do it anyway if I wasn't religious. <laughs> I love it. Um, and then finally, find something in the world. Maybe it is, I had a rabbi who was basically, he, he said, to, said to me, like, he said to us, he was speaking to us, and he's another one of these people who's, like, a, a genius and whatever. But he says, whenever I go to speak, to a city that has something very beautiful in it. I try very hard to come three hours early or four hours early, and I just go there, and like the ocean, he's like, there's one thing, I'll just go and I'll sit by the ocean quietly for 30 minutes, and I'll just do nothing but take in the ocean. You know, like whatever it is in the world that you, that basically pulls you out, I know with me, like I use exercise sometimes, too, but it pulls you out of what you're so involved in, and it helps you look at the big picture and recognize you know, that there clearly has to be, like, thought process behind this world. So these are all the three, the, the three techniques that, that, according to Maimonides, that we're supposed to use. But most important thing I told, hopefully I've told you today, is that um, you need to use them in a way that's relevant to you. You can't, you know, you can't just take someone's word from it. You have to find in your heart what touches you in Torah, in mitzvahs, and in looking at the world. That's pretty much... Is it, does anyone have any, thank you. Thank you. Does anybody have any questions at all? Sometimes you do mitzvah when you don't plan it. Yet, like for me, just on Thursday, I have to get an oil pen in my car. And I left work an hour earlier, so, and I was driving, and then all of a sudden, on the side of the road, I saw a man that I recognized that I had talked before, and I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the jack and box. I want to get something to eat. So I said to this man, I said, come in my car, this is not a stranger. And I said, I'll take you to the grocery store. I mean, get some food. And then I said to him, is this it? He said, no, I want to go to Family Dollar. I said, okay, I'll take you there. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the clock. I know that the shop closes at 6. I knew that there's about a two-hour job, possibly. I said, okay, God, I was here by accident. I'm riding down to go to get my car worked on. Then the man is coming this way. I have to give him a lift to that. I don't have to, but I chose to. And then at the same time, I end up with a, pasta, a, mil a milkshake, which I had a coupon for, which I didn't even know I until I looked at my purse. I mean, all these little things didn't happen because I planned it. Yeah. It was put there. Hashgacha Pratis is a term. It's divine providence. Individual. <laughs> divine. I took right. the person home. Then I went on my way and I said to the guy, do I still have time to sit? Yes. Beautiful. You know, I mean, That's beautiful. You know, also, there's there's a in in Pirkei chapters of our father. There's a, there's something that there's a a saying that um, that mitzvahs gereris mitzvahs. A mitzvah brings along another mitzvah. If you do a mitzvah, God's gonna make it easier for you to do another mitzvah. Same thing for an avera. If you do a, a sin, God's gonna make it easier if you do another sin. It's like you have to take a certain track, and you know, of course, you can always do 
um, tshuva, you can always repent and get back on the path of mitzvahs. But while you're doing mitzvahs, more mitzvahs are going to present themselves to you as well. About Maharal, what, is that a person? Yeah, that's, that's Reb Yehuda Lowe from Prague, Maharal from Prague. And he lived in the 1600s. And he wrote, there are English books that he wrote. In fact, there's a really neat book about, um, I just, what I was just saying, The Ethics of Our Fathers, Pirkei There's an English translation of that. You could Google it. Um, just look for um, Ethics of Our Fathers, Maharal. Probably on Amazon you could find it. Um, so he, he translated the Kabbalah? No, so he does, he, first of all, he only writes in Hebrew. But what he does is he, it's like, the best way to say it is it's accessible Kabbalah. In other words, you're not, I'm not, we're not supposed to learn Kabbalah unless we're sitting and learning Torah for many, many years. And why is that? It's not just to be mean and to make an exclusive club. It's because you can't really understand it until you get deeper into the ocean of Torah and you understand different levels. So I haven't learned long enough to do that. Rabbi Wolby, who you know, has, he's, we all know he's a genius and he's learned his whole life. And I'm not kidding. He's learned his whole life day in, day out. He's not, he's not on the level to learn Kabbalah. So what the Maharal did was he took Kabbalah and he wrote it in terms that anybody could, could read. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to understand, but it's not Kabbalah. Uh-huh. So you still have to work hard to understand it. But the English translation translates it beautifully. So it's a nice translation of his, of his translation of Kabbalah. Oh. And I, it, it is a very nice book. What, what was the name of the book again? Um, it's, the tech, it's either called Ethics of Our Fathers or oh. Pirkei Avos, which is a translation. But if you Google that with the Maharal, Maharal. Spell his name. M-A-H-A-R-A-L, which is an acronym for um, Marnan Rebbe Yehuda uh, Lowe from Prague. Okay. Lowe. But any of these things, I'll leave you with my card. So you, well, you have my email. I can, yeah. I can send links to them. You can send a link out to the class. That'd be great. I'll do that. Okay. In fact, if there's any of these books that if you want, like the, I can be happy to find it for you. Uh, you were going to ask a question. Well, oh. actually, I was going to make a comment. Sure. Um, your statement that mitzvah means to connect. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that because I know of so many people that when you talk about a mitzvah, they think it's just an act of charity. And I hear that a lot. And so by being able to say it is anything that God commands that and that helps you connect to him, I think will clarify it. Beautiful. That's exactly right. And that is where, that's where people, everyone, even... I would say 90% of Americans know the term mitzvah, right? They've heard bar mitzvah, right? That's the, the colloquial translation is it's a good deed, right? That's how my, even my parents, like, they'll, you know, like, or my, or my they're like, oh, you did a mitzvah. I'm so proud of you, Eric. Oh, good job. I'm like, well, really, that wasn't a mitzvah. <laughs> you know, I don't say that, of course, because I love my parents. Turn the tape off. Um, but uh, but, but the, the point is, right, that's exactly right. And that is, that is your recognition of that helps you very much understand and relate to mitzvahs more. Because, you know, some of the mitzvahs, like the red heifer, or like, they make, they make no logical sense. Mm-hmm. And they're supposed to make no logical That's actually what the mitzvah is. It's not supposed to wait. I mean, there might be some understanding to it. But it's understood that you're supposed to shoo a bird away. Um, actually, that one might make sense yeah. on some levels, actually. You don't want to embarrass the bird. But there are, some, there are, there are a, a number of mitzvahs that they're called chukim that are not supposed to make sense. So if not that's shaving the case, with a razor. Yeah, that's, that's good. Not shaving with a razor. Fibers. Right, mixing fibers. That's good. Right, you're not supposed to mix fiber. So these they don't make sense, right? So so if they're a, that's not a good deed, right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's a good deed because you made God happy, but no, that's connection. I connected to God because in His infinite wisdom, He knows the reason why we shouldn't be wearing connected fibers, mm-hmm. right? 
Do you know about Yehuda Berg? Yehuda Berg? It's He's a Kabbalah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And uh, that's, I got his whole course. Is he not? Does, I think I might have heard of him. Does he have a website? Isn't he out of California? And there's a, yes. there's a place in Houston near Green Wait, Fire. is that the Kabbalah Center? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's the thing. If you, this is my opinion now. I'm going to 100% opinion. If you want to learn Kabbalah, go learn the Maharal. And don't learn what someone in our generation is, you know, he's trying to sell it, right? That's the Madonna. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to criticize anybody, but I'm just saying. I'm talking about myself. Yeah. I look at it like this: If I want to learn Kabbalah, I'd rather learn from the Maharal who lived in the 1600s and wrote it in a way that I could relate to. Well, was his father, I think, was the first one. Uh, I think it was his father that was the one that translated from Hebrew into English. Oh, really? He tra- the Zohar. He yes. trans- wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Great. It's a ple- it was a pleasure to meet everybody. Thank you. Thank you. All right, no problem. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm trying to figure out which Breaking Dead song is in the